Welcome to another episode of Beta Talk. We're back down in Cornwall again at uh, Policy Rich's residence. You can find Policy Rich on Twitter. And I'm back here with Ken Bone, and we're joined today by Sove, who I interact with a bit on Twitter. And you, what's your Twitter handle? It's Plum Made, isn't it? Yeah, Plum Made. And so we're going to be chatting, uh, we're going to be following on from what we were talking about earlier with Richard, which is policy. And we'll also bring in the aspect of Sove. So you've been trading for how long, Sove? About five years? Um, four. four. Four years. Yeah. And so you may want to get into renewables at some aspect yeah, in your career. So we'll be chatting about that. So, going back to Richard, we were talking policy earlier, and uh, Ken said something offline uh, to us all. You know, how can we change policy? What What is the best, quickest way, effective way we can change policy in the UK around renewables? As heating engineers, mm. um, so the the first thing probably to say is that you're not in a very good situation to change policy because um, most of you are on your own or um, a part of companies, um, and you. There's not a, a really strong trade body or, or alliance or federation for installers. Um, certainly not one that I've come across. And there's the Chartered Institute um, and you know, bodies like that. But um, they don't represent everyone. Uh, and um, you can't use them as a conduit necessarily. I mean, you could do that. That would be one route. Um, so if, if you want to influence policy, um, there are a few sort of basic things you need to do. Um, so the first one is to form coalitions. So work with other people, basically. Sounds great. So, mm. yeah, if you've got other people with similar interests, uh, and maybe it's renewables, maybe it's uh, water regulations, maybe it's energy efficiency, um, find those people. Um, and then you need to come up with your messages. You need to find out what you want. Um, and you need to be consistent with those messages. Uh, and uh, that will involve compromise often. Um, but you need to have a, a sensible, coherent strategy, um, and you need to work together to achieve it. Now, in terms of actually how to go out and do this in the real world, um, I think Twitter's a powerful tool. Um, I genuinely think that in terms of bringing people together, particularly people who work um, often on their own, and that includes people like me. Um, as academics, we're, we don't work in big teams. We tend to work in small small groups or on our own. Um, so Twitter can be useful, but then you actually have to go to the bit where you think we want to influence this particular bit of policy. Um, and there's no way of getting around the fact it takes time and effort so you've got to spend some time going uh, you know to meet someone to meet a civil servant um, or a minister um, you've got to spend some time writing a consultation response uh, and so I guess the current example is the future home standard consultation which closes next week which is all about you know stuff that's central to all of the stuff that we do it's about heating and energy in people's homes that involves writing a written response. So the government's put out this consultation, it's got a list of questions, um, and you can, as an individual or as an organisation, you can respond to that. And you know that's the sort of thing you have to do. Um, and the other thing I'd say, actually, is we all have MPs, so we might not like our politicians, um, but we do all have people who represent us. That's a good point. And uh, you can just go mm. to them. They will normally always do Saturday surgeries, uh, and if you, as a constituent, rather than as a business, if you go to that MP and say, for example, um, I work in renewables, so you know my job is installing air source heat pumps in Cornwall. Um, the government policy to support air source heat pumps uh, is about to end, which is the case. Um, and just take that to your MP and explain it to them, um, and they will take action to follow that up. They, they don't have to, but they normally will. Um, so you can have direct engagement. Um, and the other thing is you can just engage with policymakers and government departments. The difficulty is it's finding the right person. Um, but it is possible. Um, so, yeah, I, think, I guess three things is build coalitions, um, have simple messages um, that are clear, um, but you have to have time and you have to make effort to go and do the influencing. So you could have, let's say, a group of, uh, sort of passionate engineers within different areas that sort of form a little bit of a coalition and then speak directly to their MP, that would be a good... I mean, because we do get told um, that... I mean, Bayes invited some installers down not so long ago, and I know there's this... You just mentioned the future stands thing. I think someone was talking about this the other day. They, they, I think it was this one. They went on, there was about 160 questions, and they, they got halfway through it, and they just couldn't be bothered. Mm. Uh, you know, engineers have got... They're very time-constrained. But... Also, I think another good bit of advice is actually interacting with people like you guys in academia via the yeah. social media channels. 
Because then if you guys listen to us and our concerns, you can sort of then up, uh, upscale yeah. it up the chain a little bit or or at least understand where we're all coming from. Mm. And there's, a, there's an open window. There are often open windows. So the best time to influence a bit of policy is when it's something's changing. And these are called windows of opportunity in the policy world normally. Um, and there's one open around the future home standard at the moment. So people are thinking about this. The government wants to do something. Um, actually, the policy is, as it stands, totally crap. Um, and I'll be saying that in my response, which I should say I've done at the weekends. So that doesn't form part of my core work. I've been, you know, I've read through the 100 page document at the weekends and I've written my response at the weekends. Um, the other thing is Bayes, which is the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, which writes all of the rules um, for energy, um, is keen to engage in general, which is good. Um, but like everyone in the public sector, um, there have been years of cuts um, and the capacity of the civil servants to do engagement work is really limited. When you say they're keen to engage, is, is that is that they're keen to learn? Is that virtual signaling or is that you are really keen to engage? No. So fundamental to how the civil service works is that everything you do has to be based on the best. Because they engage with evidence. industry. But the problem is industry doesn't tend to represent people like Ken and I. It's, it's your big, big guns of mm. industry. Yeah. So they, they will but, say, yes, we've engaged with industry, but they haven't really. They've engaged with the top echelons of our, our industry, you know, mm. yeah, the big guns. So because, because the civil service numbers were cut so drastically um, and there was already lots of work to do, it's sort of two two things coming at once. What they have to do really is they have to be efficient with their time. Um, and so, and this is really not a good way to develop policy, but it's just naturally what happens. They want to go to one body. They don't want to speak to lots of different people. They want someone to give them the evidence. Who do they go to? Uh, well, it varies. Um, but for example, for the future home standard, they had this expert body of people in the house building industry. Now, mm. we know the issues with the house building industry. <coughs> uh, <coughs> and that they were the people that ended up um, being central to the development of the future home standard. That I'll say again, it's crap. Um, and uh, that's, you know, that was their focused engagement. They often also listen to trade. Well, they listen to trade associations. They're skeptical of trade associations as they should be, and the civil servants should be skeptical of anyone asking for anything, um, because often it's all just about what people want rather than what's best for the country or best for the citizens. Um, but having a collective voice, I'll say again, is the way to do it. And Bayes want to know more about installers and heating engineers, because they know that there are two issues. So there's a, a reducing size of the workforce because it's an aging workforce and the number of people going into it isn't as high as the number of people coming out. So there's this natural um, sort of contraction in the size of the industry. The other side of it is um, if we're going to reach our goals for 2050 and net zero, net zero emissions, we're going to need a workforce that's much bigger, lots more heating engineers. Uh, and um, they, they know there are issues there. I don't think it's the government's priority, if I'm 100% honest. <laughs> Uh, I think they've got other things that they care about more, um, but they know it's an issue. And if if there was one body or one group who could say we represent installers or engineers, and they actually do, um, you could have a really good relationship with the government. Well, there was something Guaranteed. set up called Installers First, and mm. they came under HHIC, mm. which came under the Energy Utilities Alliance. And I think I was one of their first or their first guest blogger, Installers First, and. Um, if I'm honest, I think Installers First jumped on a bit of a thing that friends of Andy, who was a guest man, God started something online uh, a few years back now with a few other people. And I think Installers First saw that there's a bit of a, a gathering, sort of a, a, you know, a strength behind this, these numbers of installers getting together. They jumped on it. I, I was quite optimistic, and then I wasn't because I, they, they, they soon realised I talk about other energies, like solar thermal is a big, big thing I talk about. Mm. And all of a sudden... Uh, I found I was, even though I was their first guest blog, blogger, I was blocked on their social media accounts. So Installers First blocked me, HHIC blocked me, and the EUA blocked me. They also blocked people like um, Gasman God as well. I mean, I remember Gasman God messaged me. He said, why on earth did they block you? He, I mean, he probably won't mind me saying this. He said, I can probably understand why they blocked me. Um, <laughs> it's something I don't know. I think it was very silly of them because mm. they are supposed to represent our industry in a non-biased way. And it's my opinion, but you know you can make your own opinion, all your listeners. But they do seem to be going down one avenue, which is the hydrogen avenue, which, as we know, will support and sustain the boiler manufacturing industry in the UK. 
we sell a lot of boilers in the UK, more than anywhere else in Europe. And your big companies obviously need to sustain that. Otherwise, you know, their business models collapse. Um, and I've said to them uh, quite explicitly that you should be represent all technologies. You know, that you're the heating and hot water industry council. You should kind of represent everything. I really want them to start talking about solar thermal, which they don't, or solar heat is the hashtag we sort of now use. Uh, so, yes, it's... Um, It'll be interesting how installers do sort of group into. I mean, would smaller cohorts dotted around the country? So, like we, we I've talked about, obviously MPs are local, so you could have a little local group of installers that then sort of keep going to their MP to make sure they're aware of what goes on. Um, I want to bring in a survey again. So, survey, how did you get into this this bizarre industry of ours? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you mentioned lots of public funding cuts. So I um, worked in the art industry and education, worked in higher education for, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And um, after huge amounts of public funding cuts um, to both education and arts um, through the Arts Council, there was less and less work. So I found myself in a call centre in my early 40s selling w- bottles of wine which wasn't bad because occasionally you get a free bottle of wine <laughs> but um, I kind of thought this isn't going to sort me out for the future and coincidentally at the same time I was living in a really shoddy house with really shoddy plumbing and gas work it was flooded six times etc right. etc et I had the cooker shut down because it was incorrectly hooked up to the gas line <laughs> 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 yeah um, discovered some shocking things so yeah I kind of thought I'm on to a winner basically because I'm not going to um, tie plastic bags around fittings because they're leaking and then embed them in a wall so you, you, you were involved in art because uh, you did your masters you did a masters in art didn't you or? yeah yeah I've got a yeah first degree and masters and you studied at, at quite a, the Royal College of Art yeah yeah you? so it's quite it's quite a, a unique transition from well lots of people like yeah I suppose it's that considered probably that the arts are, you know, high arts and not about getting your hands dirty in a way because people think about kind of elitist galleries and what have you. But, like, I've been building sculpture since the mid-90s, which mainly is being dirty and cold in warehouses. Have you built any copper sculptures? (laughs) Copper pipe sculptures yet? Oh, (laughs) not yet, but... um, I have got a plan for some of the old copper that I rip out. Before I take it to the scrappy, I'm going to do something with it. And, and you're, you, you've, so you've done your plan, you, you, you're involved in gas as well now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Would, would, you, is, is some, would you look towards getting into renewables? Is that something in your I'd future business plan? I'd love to do renewables. It was always my plan to go straight to renewables, not to gas. It was just Very sort good. of... Very <laughs> good practicalities have you looked into how you would do that um no i mean my first port of call was like trying to get some apprenticeship work with local renewables companies now for whatever reason um i couldn't get a placement um maybe i don't know being a middle-aged maybe being a middle-aged female with um a lot of management experience might put people off. They might think I might answer back. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I just don't know. It might just be capacity. A company told me recently he had almost offered me some work but didn't, said that actually the young lad they took on instead ended up being not so good and they had to leave, let him go. <laughs> so I don't, yeah. But um, yeah, I'd love to get some renewables training it's just about capacity and finding the best place to do it. Um, it's tough. You know. I mean, I've been talking to people about this because there's a training. There is a bit of an issue around training. Uh, it's a bums on seats culture. I mean, I've been told I should do a YouTube channel that helps people go through the journey of what they need to learn, what they need to know. So I'm, gonna, I'm working with some people. On, I'm useless to all this technology, if I'm honest. I mean, it's, I just struggle and manage to do a podcast. but um, So I'm going to be doing some YouTube stuff, uh, all sorts of things really about system design, but also like a little one of take, t- some episodes where that takes people through a journey. If they are in gas and maybe we want to trans- or oil and want to transition to renewables, 
you know, what they need to know and, and just some good learning resources really so that's something I'm going to be it, I mean it's very difficult now because um, you know Nathan and I we're, we're real old school engineers and we've done we've done like things like three year four year apprenticeships but now it's, it's almost like a chicken and egg situation you've got to you've got to do a course or you've got to do some training and then you may not be taken on by a company because you haven't had the experience but you need to be taken on by a company to gain the experience in the first place and that's very hard for a lot of engineers as we get called on social media all the time about how do we get into heat pumps what can i do this is from the gas engineers isn't it yeah, yeah, yeah. this is from this is from gas engineers that are starting to see the change they know it's coming there isn't enough apprenticeships out there um not all companies are wanting to take on the responsibility and the hassle and the paperwork that goes with taking on a apprentice or a semi-skilled out of college done their mvhq just finished it is very difficult so it i feel for i feel for guys i feel i really do feel for guys i've had a couple work with me but i haven't got the capabilities and the capacity to take on guys full time so well also it's a big like taking on someone and training them is a huge responsibility and I think if you've not really got much experience of that that could be quite a scary situation to put yourself in I can imagine being like when I was when I was teaching I had to have apprenticeship teachers at different times and it really adds to your workload (laughs) and um I was you know an experienced teacher but still you're sort of scratching your head right what should I give them to do and you've got to make sure that you're monitoring them giving them enough support so I get it why as well that's another like so maybe is there something out there that can give people more support to take on people to to train I mean there used to be in the old days but you're absolutely right I mean I have had um I'm a small company it's generally me and the wife and occasionally I have a couple of guys that come on board and help me out and I've had apprenticeships uh, or apprentices in the past initially it slows you down absolutely there's the added paperwork um, uh, the health and safety and everything else that goes with it and then actually at the workplace the cold face the front line whatever which way you want to call it it does slow you down as doing a job doing a project which is fine and you know you have to have that patience and 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 that mindset to you're trying to engage with the, the person that whoever it is man woman boy you know you try you're trying to you're trying to um put them in a situation give over the knowledge that you've gained over the years and trying to upskill them as well and it it is a in some what a burden um some people can do you've it. Hit, you've hit on a word there, upskill. I mean, like Richard mentioned a little while ago, we've got to get more, there's going to be more engineers. I mean, we've got a lot of engineers yeah, out there. Absolutely. Gas. And it, I mean, we've obviously, we've, we've sort of talked about apprenticeships, but you know, you've got people that are already qualified in gas. And I think, and I'm going to be talking to someone at the end of next week about how maybe I can help nationalise uh, some training, independent training. I know manufacturers do training and so they should, you know, because obviously it's about their, their equipment. And there are awarding bodies and certification companies that are doing training as well. But without going into too much detail, I don't think they're fit for purpose. But I think there needs to be something where an independent thing, where someone that really wants to know about this can then start working on the fundamentals of learning some of the funds. Because they're already out there doing the gas stuff. And some of them are really, really good. The trouble is, they're competing with that really thin edge at the bottom. So we all talk about this race to the bottom. So there's some really, really good engineers out there who are learning some really good stuff system design good practice they can't compete with the quotes that are going in and so they're actually having to they, they can't do what they really want to do because they're they're having to compete with that that culture there is a culture out there that just want to sling a boiler in walk away within a day and so i think for them sorts of people that they, they might think well let's get into renewables and you know i want to get it done i want to learn how to design properly i mean that's a big problem most of the people that are in our industry come through the gas safe route where they learn gas safety Unfortunately, not all of them are safe, but they never learned anything about system design, not at all. Um, and like we always talk about on this show, you, you've got you can get away with just putting the ball, and as long as the radiators work and you get hot water, you can't do that with renewables. So, so there's going to be this um, 
where, where people want to learn about system design it doesn't take it's, you know you haven't got to be a brain surgeon to, 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 to learn it either and and then go through a little structure of what they learn how solar thermal obviously I want to start training people on um, and I'll get people like Brandon involved in that and a few other people I know and we can sort of train people around solar thermal combine that with heat pumps I think that's a great thing that's not often talked about the fact I mean when I hear people talk about high there's something on LinkedIn recently I was involved in people are talking about hybrid heat pumps and they're talking about connecting it with hydrogen boilers. I think why, once again, solar heat is not in the discourse. It's so frustrating. This is, uh, you know, you can turn your heat pumps off in the summer with solar thermal. And that's something that people need to be trained around. So, so what I'm going to do, start off with the YouTube videos, get people enthusiastic about it, and then maybe set up something on a national level where we can start training people properly. Going back to Richard, I mean, have you seen any issues with trying to use, sort of come from the policy world? Did, did you actually study how people get trained in our industry? Was that something you sort of delved into when you were doing your um, your sort of thesis? No, that, that's not really been a focus of my work, I'm afraid. Um, I, I've mentioned before there's a, a woman called Faye Wade at Edinburgh University who has done a, quite a lot of research around heating engineers um, and how they interact and how they work together. Um, so I'd say Google her name because she's done... So who's who that? Faye Wade? Faye Wade, yeah. Um, so you can Google her, and, and she's got plenty of stuff on her website about the stuff she's written about heating engineers. Um, but I, I mean, so I, I went to an event that was run by um, a, a group uh, that was about skills for net zero. Um, and this was in London, I think, before Christmas. And then there were senior senior people from government there and various industry interests. And uh, it was all very much about um, corporate jobs, heavy engineering, putting wind turbines up, <clears throat> power networks, and so on. And I said, come on, guys. If we're going to have loads of heat pumps and energy efficiency and low-carbon heating, this is all about heating engineers and carpenters. This is not about stuff that's happening at big corporate companies. And I, I really hope they got the message. Um, I, I don't know if they did, but you can try your best. I, I said something at a uh, fully charged show on one of the seminars. I said... Um uh, the conversation was going along about, you know, uh, we're trying to crack down on CO2 and bringing in renewables. And I, I asked the question, well, that's all very well, but where are the engineers that are going to be installing this equipment? And he couldn't actually give me a good answer. And he was a recruitment specialist company, mm. mostly doing high-end recruitment in the industry. Mm, so it's, it's an issue that's not... Mm. Maybe, well, I look at it and I talk to people about the whole training. The thing, the thing is with training, there's some very, very big organisations involved in training. Uh, it's a very lucrative industry. Um, it's a bums-on-seat industry. And we, I mean, we were talking to some engineers that have been on some training recently, Ken and I, and uh, they were appalled by it, really. Um, and that's not right, you know. It's, uh, it's got to change. It's, uh, you've got to get that training right. I mean, I think manufacturers' training could be a lot better as well. Um, once again, you know, their business model is to sell units, which, you know, they, they, they got to sell units. I mean, that's how they survive. But um, I think they're training. I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been told I should go around and actually rate manufacturers' training because one of my big things is we're not using what I call adult learning theory. So in lots of other industries... I mean, how we learn is a very, very studied science. You know, how humans actually take on information, how they can recall it, um, is a very, very studied science. And it's used in lots of other industries, um, adult learning theory. Absolutely not used at all in our industry. You know, I've seen a lot of training and I could pull it to pieces. That doesn't mean I'm an expert trainer, because that's the one of the other misconceptions, that you've got to be an expert in this technology to then sort of transfer that information no you haven't you just got to be able to know how to facilitate learning and as Ken and I was it's, it, peer learning is one of the best ways people learn from each other um, unfortunately we see a lot of uh, instructional teaching in this industry where it's just lecture 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 most of the people walk out that day's training paying quite a lot of money for it and they'll forget 50% of it um, as soon as they walk through the door and that's actually um, scientifically proven that you do forget so much once you walk out right. the door so i've got a, i've got a postgrad teaching qualification mm. and um, my experience of um training within the plumbing industry is that it is utterly appalling i mean they wouldn't pass like the 
basic level of teaching and you wonder like you know everyone's having a cup of tea at break time people are like I don't know what's going on here. So you and I both got our postgrads in certificate of education, haven't yeah. we? We know how learning takes place, and, and, yeah. and it's not at all in our industry, is it? No, it's utterly absent. And when you think how heavily regulated, like say working in gas or something, is I, it? I was flabbergasted that it's like, hang on, you want people to be safe, but this is how you're teaching it. I've I've generally come out of. Um, not all training courses and stuff, but I generally come out of most of the training courses despondent and frustrated. Um, and why did I pay all that money for? Because so I haven't actually learned anything. It sounds to me like um, there's just a lack of creativity around thinking about this training. And I just wonder whether that's part... I mean, you know, heating engineers and the world of heating is not a very diverse group. We know that already. It's, it's mostly... Well, it's almost all men. Um, so having you is, is a rarity, I think, as a, as a female Well, there's more engineer. and more of it. There's there, more, there more, more of course, more yeah, and more. Good, good, but, you know, yeah. it, it is not a diverse... And I just wonder whether there's something about not having some of the right minds in there. And mm. maybe... Because the, when the government was, was talking about skills for heating uh, last year, and that the one person they put to do the job um, to think about it no longer does it, they were really keen to promote diversity um, because I think they thought there were things from different sectors that they could bring into this and yeah i mean if it's if it's just a man stood at the front of a lecture theater talking about something often that's not the best way of learning and well, i'm going to be talking be to my because obviously this show is sponsored by the mcs and i'm going to be talking they're in talks at the moment about training and they've said you know they want to involve me as well because i think people think training is all about getting an expert who knows some knowledge about something and then that's it well, it's not. Like I say, there's a survey, and I know there's this whole theory behind how training should take place and how people learn. Mm. It's called adult learning theory. I mean, some people call it androgy as well. And so they've said, well, we, we, we need you on these conversations and how does this learning or how should it actually be structured? It's actually quite simple. I mean, uh, I, I tend to sort of post a little video on Twitter sometimes. I mean, rather than having loads of people come into a room and then you just lecture to them because people switch off, you get them asking questions and engage put, with them. You get, get them, them, you put them into groups, yeah. and you say, "Right, here's a question. Work on that for a little." Because what they do is they pull out a, they pull out prior knowledge that they already know, and then they start discussing it. And while they're discussing it, that's actually embedded into their memory a lot better than when you listen. When you listen and read stuff, it's very hard to actually get that embedded neurologically into your your memory. But when you're actually engaging with people and discussing it problem solving it critically thinking about it analyzing it that's going way deep into your neural and it's actually quite an easy technique to implement and i mean i've got someone uh, that ken's introduced me to he's very very experienced uh, um, heat pump engineer very experienced he's done some training before as ken has done some training before and i'm going to just have a one day chat with him to teach him a little bit about um, adult learning theory and then we're actually thinking about setting up something aren't we ken where we can actually then train people that want to get into renewables independently i'm not saying that they haven't then got to go and do their bpec which will make or whatever rewarding body then links with the mcs but just so they feel happy that they've had some good quality training and actually feel competent about what, what they're actually now getting into because so many people are going on this training don't feel competent no different to the gas and then they're going out there banging this stuff in and it's not going to work like we've said before gas you can get away you get you know borders you can get away with it they're going to keep people warm and you can get water but they're not going to be efficient there's so many out there that are not working efficiently. Just to say that how um, that knowledge and sort of training passes on through to all the different aspects of the industry, like a really important interface I've been finding is the merchants and where I'm ordering the boiler or whatever. And um, what I often find is that they're just selling me the boiler based on like warranty and price. And that's it. Like, that's the most important thing. And I'm finding myself sort of challenging them and going, well, do you know what the heat exchange is made of? Can I have a look at what it's going to be like to service? Or can I, you know, just what well, I think that's pretty simple, basic things. They don't know necessarily. Now, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of merchants who know tons of stuff and do know. But um, I would really like to see them working through that more complex information you know well this is this is going to give you the option to make this more efficient on the heating side this is you know 
that's that actually a good sense? point. I mean, yeah, that does actually make sense. And if there's any merchants out there listening, I will probably be looking for some because if I do nationalised training, obviously I'll probably want some centres all around the country. So if any merchants want to get involved with that, you know where I am. <laughs> get hold of me. Um, the technology is moving forward, whether it be gas, oil, or renewables, heat pumps, solar. We've got to emphasise on efficiencies and calculations and thermal insulation. They are all the ingredients for a good system, as well as design, of course. Yet you can fit a heat pump, but it's got to run efficiently. I mean, I've 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 audited heat pumps on uh, estates and and small developments that have been in for years, but they haven't actually been commissioned and set up correctly. And still costing the customer a lot of money that the customer wasn't expecting to be paying that sort of money for. Go back to so, Richard. You you just mentioned just mentioned that lady again who who studied about installers. Like, that's quite interesting. Who, what was her name again? So this is Faye Wade, and people um, can just Google. Her yeah, Google, and, so it's Faye um, F A Y E, and then Wade is W A D E, and she's based at Edinburgh University, um, and and she did her PhD research. So she is like the expert on this really um, in terms of academics and she spent a lot of time she spent days with heating engineers just with them talking to them finding out you know what they think and how it works and she was interested really in how how the the sort of social network works for heating engineers and for plumbers Uh, and she also went to it's funny you should mention so she went to um, merchants so she spent mornings okay. in Merchants, and, and you can... Her, her thesis is actually lovely. To, it's like a book. It's lovely to read. Um, so it's it's sort of thing you could print out and put next to your bed um, and just <laughs> have it there to, to flick through. Um, but yeah, she spent a lot of time sort of on the front line, as it were, and in buildings, uh, in plumbers Merchants. What, what were so, her conclusions in her thesis? Uh, I don't think it made any real strong conclusions. It just highlighted how people interact and how they were, and how they network, and the importance of um, plumbers merchants as one place of interaction. Uh, I think also the importance of, of training with um, appliance manufacturers, um, and then I think um, probably highlighted some of the issues around you know, loan working and actually not networking. As um, in, like the gaps were too wide between um, knowledge and you know between um, one particular one engineer from another or. No, I'm not sure she made any sort of assumptions about knowledge. Um, she was more interested in how the network of engineers just worked together. I mean, it's interesting. Um, so you've mentioned Edinburgh University. You're uh, you're associated with um, Exeter, is that right? And mm-hmm. are, are there, what are the universities that are really looking at energy in sort of a big way, or, or even us, the engineers, or the people out there doing it? I mean, there's there's quite a few um, different bits and pieces. Um, so I'm I'm based at Exeter. Uh, so, uh, our, on the campus down here in, in Penryn, um, which is near Falmouth in Cornwall, we have um, a whole renewable energy department. Um, but they have historically focused on um, electricity. Uh, the, the group that I'm in is called the Energy Policy Group. Um, so, we focus purely on policy and regulation issues. And I guess I'm, I'm the sort of heat expert within that group. Uh, and then, in terms of heating, Cardiff University is doing quite a lot of stuff, actually. Um, so there's quite a good southwest connection going on. Um, Cardiff is, is very sort of up to speed on the smart, flexible, sort of whizzy data side of things. Can you explain that a little bit more and how it can relate to like a heat pump technology Absolutely, or battery yeah. storage so, technology? So some of their analysis is, is how you integrate um, systems together. So um, if, if we're going to be in a world where we've got a lot more heat pumps um, and we're much more reliant on renewable electricity... Uh, the whole system's a bit more complicated um, because you've got big peaks and troughs in electricity demand over the course of a day, much bigger um, than we currently have because obviously that's currently met by gas. Um, and as well as having those big peaks and troughs of demand or, or a, a varying peak and trough of demand, which is going on to the electricity system from the gas system, um, at the same time, you've got an increasing amount of uh, variable electricity generation so we all know the wind doesn't blow all the time, the sun doesn't shine all the time, um, and actually it can vary within hours. Um, so if you could have a surplus, you can have a surplus exactly. Um, you might have an unexpected drop. So I remember seeing something a few weeks ago. There was unexpected cloud cover in Cornwall, um, and so a gas generating plant had to be turned on. Now this is all becoming a lot more complicated. Um, so there are people working on 
how you can integrate all this flexibility together. Um, and so some of the people at Cardiff are working on the sort of the system-wide impacts of that. There are also, I should say, people at Cardiff working on actually how you do the buildings, so how you make buildings as sustainable as possible, and trying to make buildings power stations. So rather than being consumers of energy, buildings end up becoming producers to the system. Uh, there are plenty of people um, at Leeds University working on energy. Uh, I mean, yeah, there, there's too much to mention, really. Mm. Um, but I, I think um, the UK, it's probably worth saying, the UK Energy Research Centre, um, which is one of the biggest academic focuses, um, is based in London uh, at Imperial. Sorry, it's now based at UCL. It was based mm-hmm. at Imperial. Uh, and if you're interested in what's going on in terms of national energy research, they're probably quite a good place to look. And um, they've got quite an active Twitter account, quite a good website, um, and they will point be able to point you towards all different directions. So, for example, if you're interested in heat pumps, um, you could contact them and say what's going on about heat pumps, and you'll be able to find the most up to date research. It's, it's worth mentioning because I know uh, heating engineers we're, we're we're a very mixed, diverse bunch. Uh, from, you know, we all come from all different sorts of backgrounds, and I can remember something uh, way back on. So I think sometimes people involved in academia are seen as a bit elitist and a bit different to us, but that, but you guys aren't really, and actually you're kind of on our side. You're actually very interested in us heating engineers, aren't you? And it's uh, I th- I think it's a good sort of a, a match, you know, that we're. Social media is meant we can chat to each other. You and I chat to all the yeah. time on social media, um, you know, because we're important, you're important, and if we're going to get this, because as we all know, the biggest voice are the energy companies, um, which is quite a paradox, really. You know, we want to go down and, and, and create a world where we have renewable technology or... Uh, the fact that there's these energy companies that make trillions worldwide, <laughs> the ones sort of shaping policy is a bit of a... Uh, you know, paradox. That's we we need mm. to we need to be very aware of, and and I'm going to bring up now. It's probably a perfect juncture to bring up hydrogen. So as we know, our border industry is the largest in Europe, so they're going to have to keep selling borders, and they want hot. See, um, don't get me wrong. A lot of these border manufacturers make heat pumps as well and other technology, but there does seem to be a shift towards them really focusing on hydrogen. I just want to say, I mean, my cousin, for instance, who's been involved with HEVAC for over 40 years so he was pulling heat out of Lake Geneva way way back in the 70s um, now he actually kind of sees hydrogen being something in the future you know producing hydrogen from renewable electricity and being able to ship and store it now that kind of makes sense to me but what people don't realise is if we do go hot for hydrogen boilers in this country A we've got to think about the network infrastructure because hydrogen is a very small molecule can leak very easily out of our pipe work we use it actually to find leaks so if I'm testing a refrigeration line, I will, you know, hydrogen will go into that line in a, in a mix of nitrogen, which is an inert gas, and we will sniff out hydrogen to see where it's leaking because it's the smallest molecule. It'll, mm. It will leak. Um, now, hydrogen around the world is mainly produced with something what we call steam methane reformation. Now, that's very... Uh, it, to produce one kilogram of hydrogen, you, you end up producing about nine kilograms of CO2. And then you've got to do something with that CO2, which is then called what they call carbon capture storage. So the energy companies, this is my mind, this is only my opinion, but they've kind of created a whole new billion-dollar industry where they're going to be paid lots and lots of money to capture this carbon just to produce some hydrogen, which doesn't carry as much heat energy as our methane. And it, it, all, looks, it all looks as if it's though to, it's to keep selling boilers and to keep the gas network companies happy. It just doesn't seem quite right yet. I mean, do you, would you agree with that one, Rich? So yes um, and no. Um, so I think um, the challenge, the, the climate change challenge that we have um, globally in the UK, particularly for heating, is massive. So to get to net zero, we know that we can't burn any fossil fuels whatsoever in 2050. So that means no petrol or diesel cars and vans. Um, and it means no gas or oil or coal for heating. So something's got to happen. We know it can't be gas. Now, historically, it's been that you know, we need to electrify everything. Uh, we need to move everything onto renewable electricity or low-carbon electricity from something, uh, you know, whether that's from nuclear or from renewables or from some sort of power generation with carbon capture. Um, the theory was that that was what you should do. Uh, and fundamentally, not much has changed. Um, so hydrogen, 
emerged really relatively recently as an idea for for what to do about heat in the UK. The theory is that you can um, just swap out methane in fossil gas with hydrogen um, and then people can have their boilers. And this is actually quite appealing to people, to policymakers in some ways, because it means you don't have to do a lot of the hard work around energy efficiency um, because, you know, you need energy efficiency for heat pumps to work properly. You don't need it for a gas boiler, as we've discussed already. You can just throw a gas boiler in and it will work and it will produce enough heat because you're burning stuff um, and you'll always get hotter temperatures burning stuff than you will with a heat pump. Um, and it has been... So my research highlighted that it was actually... It was the energy industry heavily promoting hydrogen. It was two elements. It was the gas networks and the appliance manufacturers. So I disagree with you slightly in saying you know, it wasn't the Shells and the Chevrons and the BPs, um, although they are getting engaged in this. Um, but it was the people who want to sell more boilers, fundamentally, um, and the people who want to keep the gas network going. Um, it is, as a, as a concept, it's quite difficult to get your head around, I think. Um, it's, it's not just swapping the gas grid to hydrogen. You need to build all of these facilities to first produce the hydrogen from methane. So the steam methane reforming process uh, has to happen probably in every town, or certainly uh, there have to be lots of these sites across the country producing this hydrogen in the first place from natural gas. Um, and as well as producing the carbon in the process, it's also worth bearing in mind that you have to use quite a lot of energy to produce the hydrogen from natural gas. So you have quite big losses. Um, so say then you've got your hydrogen and you've got your carbon that you want to capture, your carbon dioxide you want to capture, you've then got to decide what you do with that carbon dioxide. There's currently there's no national network of carbon dioxide pipes. The theory is that you pipe it to the North Sea and put it in depleted gas fields. Um, and I can see you laughing. Uh, this is seriously what is being discussed. And there is, I think people, so carbon capture and storage as a technology um, is something that's been done in a few trials, um, but it's never been done you know, as a market. It's never really been proven at scale. And we're, the whole hydrogen premise is based on this idea that carbon capture and storage is going to work at scale and it's going to be cheap um and it's going to be absolutely fine and, and I you've got to build a totally different infrastructure yeah. to across but the uk you still to, so you still need so you still need a new boiler um because existing boilers won't work on hydrogen um the gas network will need work um because of leaks well they're already upgraded yeah but it needs well, already it started need, it, it will need more work so it's being upgraded mm. for safety reasons but it just happens that the plastic pipes are better for hydrogen there's a really really massive question that no one wants to be raised from the gas industry about internal pipe work so if you've got any copper or um any pipe work that's old it's not going to be suitable for hydrogen and that might mean pulling up people's tiled floors whatever you know that's not been tackled um, and I, it's so it, like electrifying heat. Don't get me wrong. If we're going to get everyone onto heat pumps, is a huge challenge. Um, and I think we're probably too late to meet our targets around this now. Um, even though we've got thirty years, there's just too much to do. Basically, um, that is a huge challenge. But you can see different benefits to it. So reducing gas imports, uh, increasing renewable energy, uh, making people's homes more comfortable. The hydrogen thing just has so many unanswered questions and so many issues. Um, but it's being presented as, you know, the solution. This is what we should definitely do. One but thing I worry about is, is, is that the boiler company, because they have got, I mean, we see it, Such influence over... Well, we see it, that they're, they're marketing it already, that they've got hydrogen-ready boilers. And my worry is, because obviously they want people to keep buying boilers, is mm. that they, they can market it. All right, we've got, you know, if, we, if the hydrogen will work in the future, here's a hydrogen-ready boiler, install it. And they might even get around the fact, because obviously boil, gas boilers aren't allowed in after 2025, but there might be a little caveat which says, well, this isn't just a methane boiler, this is a hydrogen-ready boiler. We can put these into new buildings. Um, I, I imagine that's what they're kind of thinking. Or uh, what, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're pushing that line, absolutely. Um, but why would you do that when you can put something that works already? Well, a new, it just doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, yeah. a new, all new builds, as far as I'm concerned, it should have solar heat. And I, I was talking to Brussels uh, last week, um, the Secretary General for the Solar uh, Europe Heat Group. Um, you know, we're, we're so far behind the rest of Europe on solar heat. 
Uh, it's because of our big boiler market. We we got the biggest boiler market in 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 the in Europe, and we're so far. I mean, when, when I read this stuff, you know, we're we're world leading, in and I'm thinking, what? How, how, who's who said we're world leading? Where where are we leading the world? Um, I want to come back to survey. So you, obviously you've been involved in gas for just a short time, but you're mm. enjoying it. I take it, and yeah, you're yeah. enjoying working boilers. I mean, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking boilers. I mean, we we've all grown. I've grown up around them. Um, you know, it's a it's a wonderful industry as well. Um, I just think it would be a bit more transparent. What, what Have you sort of um, heard when you sort of go into the merchants or, or have you sort of heard anyone sort of getting excited about maybe that they're going to be moving to hydrogen or you know, there's some changes coming or, or do you think your average engineer is not really discussing it yet? I think, um, in my experience, the guys I meet um, who are all really sound um, and we all have a nice crack down at the merchants um are just like getting by day to day you know they haven't really got the capacity the people that i end up talking to about this stuff is my customers mm. and um i really think what's not being considered in all of this is how customers can be encouraged to take more responsibility for what's going on in their homes and what they're spending their money on um, i have a few customers who say to me oh we want to be more environmentally sound like we want to be more energy efficient but how should we do that with our budget and there's such little information out there like I've had people that I've put on to green energy companies to try and get them like solar thermal or something and then they end up coming back to me for a renewed gas boiler because it's just too much of a headache like they can never get clear information and they're like, look, just, you know, we trust you to just put in an efficient boiler, do it well. And then we know we've got that for like 10 to 15 years. And we'll, you know, maybe there's some more information then. Mm. Um, so I, there are customers out there who do want to take more responsibility. But it's almost like when they try to, everyone's like, nah, nah, just put this in. That's going to save you a grand. Like, who cares? I agree. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard for that cohort of the customers. It's also hard for the engineers, isn't it? Like you say, they, yeah. everyone's got to put some food on the table for their family, so that oh, yeah. they just but have to keep going and, and doing what they know. And it is worth saying at this point that the, the policy that's supposed to support renewable heating is badly designed. So you can get the renewable heat incentive as a household um, if you install a heat pump or if you install solar thermal, certain types of solar thermal, I should say. Um, but you get that money paid back to you over a seven-year period. I mean, who's that going to appeal to, seriously? And when the government... I mean, why did they think that was a good idea? I still haven't got to the bottom of why they thought that was a good idea. But if you were given that cash up front... Which I think happens grant, in Europe, doesn't it? I think loads of countries. Yeah, Netherlands Europe, does yes. it, France does it, Germany does it. We, for some reason, we decided to go for a seven-year payback period. I mean, that doesn't help me pay off my In your research, did you find where that, where that element of it came from? Or? Well, it was all based around that there was a fear that grant-based systems allow people to game the policy a bit more so what's happened before and and this is actually a real issue so what's happened before is that if you offer people a grant the appliance manufacturers will put the price of the kit up or the salespeople will put the price of the kit up. that's already happening yeah exactly so um that is the issue with grants there was also this idea that i think having a seven-year payback meant you could somehow develop more of like a market and it became more of an investment proposition rather than just doing the right thing, which is shoving a heat pump in. And yet the grants that you see um, for gas boilers that are put in and the installs are barely like, they're barely safe. They're like holding on to safety by the skin of their teeth. And yet that's all being paid for up front. Mm. So I start to begin to think there's a bit of an agenda here. Mm. That is interesting. <laughs> that is an interesting point, actually, yeah. when you put it like that. I mean, that's, is that grants under the eco scheme? Um, I'm not sure entirely because yeah. I, I don't work on any of them, but yeah. we've got quite a few customers, and um, Pete, who I work with, who does LPG, quite a few customers who've had um, LPG installs mm. from firms up country yeah. over the Tamar um, <laughs> who come down install the, you know, rip out what's there, install the boiler, but won't come to sort of do any maintenance. It's not necessarily um, 
meets warranty requirements they don't put in a servicing contract like it loads of things are shut. i mean we saw one that we just had to like put a we had to id it straight away mm. just shut it down it's like it's only been in for six months yeah well i'm afraid those companies <laughs> have been around for uh many many years you know the sort of come down three or four of them come down they do an entire system in a day and they jump in the van they finish at nine o'clock in the evening jump in the van and then travel back 400 miles and you never yeah. see them again yeah um yeah there's mm-hmm. they're, they're still out there and they're now moving on to renewable technologies as well i want to pick up on that thing we, we've just said about how the grant system made renewable technology a bit more expensive and we've seen that in the heat pump world haven't we ken we have indeed so yes. if you go back in the HEVAC industry where sort of my cousin started you didn't generally buy packaged units you sort of bought a compressor and you actually kind of built the thing in its own right bespoke sort of yeah bolt, bolt, bolt all the bits together a heat pump basically isn't a very you know it's an evaporate condenser expansion valve and a compressor now trust me these things combined don't cost that much money i mean i can get an air to air air to air sort of heat pump which are, which are generally used in offices, you know, for about 700 quid, you know, six kilowatts. Mm-hmm. Now, when we go into this heat pump world of renewables, we're talking now thousands. Um, and that's that puts people off, unless they're going to go for a grant. I mean, as, as we know, we all know engineers that are actually putting stuff in, not under the RHI, because... The customer realised, you know, they got the money, but they realised the engineers are competent and they're going to get a really, really good install. It's going to pay for itself anyway. But yeah, this whole grant thing seemed to engender this whole thing about, right, for manufacturers, right, we can charge a lot of money for this stuff. And they shouldn't be, really. I mean, it's not, it's not massively expensive stuff. So I can't get my head around how much heat pumps cost. It's not complicated. It's all technology that exists. Um, okay, it's been packaged neatly together, but... There is clearly some fat that needs to be cut. Um, the issue we've got in the UK is that obviously they get policy support, which is sort of a good thing to drive the market. But at the same time, it does mean people can charge more because they're still seen. I mean, heat pumps are still seen as a green premium product. They're not seen as a bog standard thing. Go to Sweden. It, you know, you wouldn't even batter an eyelid if someone had a heat pump because they're everywhere. Um, so there's those two issues. And um I don't know how you counteract it because we need to have policies that support loads of heat pumps um, but at the same time we need to also get costs down rapidly um, because there's clearly costs that can come down. Um, So it would be really interesting and I've done this for gas boilers before there are some really interesting price discrepancies between countries even within the EU for gas boilers for the same product. We'd love to see that data. We're talking double the amount of money for a gas boiler in one country compared Mm -hmm. to another no reason why apart from that's just the market rate um it would be fascinating to do the same study for heat pumps um but as a consumer like me i never actually saw how much my heat pump costed i got a final bill for all of the kit from new heat um so i still don't know what i even paid that's interesting mm-hmm. mm. and that that um that price discrepancy compared to a gas boiler, you know, uh, you take a, a typical homeowner who wants to become greener, they want to be thinking more environmentally, um, their boiler's coming to the end of its life, they're now looking at other technologies, they see the price and it's like, oh my goodness, you know, it's like ten, six times, ten times the price of another gas boiler, you know, and unfortunately in this country, I don't think... As homeowners, not all homeowners, but homeowners and um, um, people don't invest in their heating systems as some of our European cousins. Mm-hmm. And it also, it's seen as um, it's always seen as a cost. We never talk about the value. And, you know, people always do uh, cost assessments and paybacks of renewables, but we never think actually, my house feels lovely. We've got an even temperature all throughout the year. Um, hot water. Well, well, I, I would great. like to say we're, so, we're all in t-shirts. Here, <laughs> we've got some lovely, <laughs> it, um, is, it is lovely sunny, cool heating, and it's, uh, yeah. yeah. I've said this. I've said this before on, on a few things. It's it's a white good good uh, appliance. You know, a typical gas boiler. It works every day, every year for about 10, 15 years. Well, if you're lucky now, Kim. And, <laughs> let's not exaggerate it and too then much, all you know some i mean some guys on twitter you know they're doing services on on appliances that the customer hasn't actually had service for seven or eight years 
And then all of a sudden, the customer's been given a bill for £500 because that boiler needs a bit of TLC, a bit of, bit of care. Um, and they don't think about every day it's given them heating and hot water for the seven years previous mm. without any failure. And now you've got to spend £500 mm. to put it right or get it going again. And for some reason, they, fr- they they jump up and down about it. It's like, oh, this shouldn't happen, that shouldn't happen. Well, they jump up and down against some of the prices. That, you know, trust me, uh, the, the average engineer isn't charging anywhere near as much as they should be. This is this is experienced knowledge. But we're but, talking about now like a m- massive cultural shifts in the country that actually we've been, in my view, trained very well to um, believe that luxury goods are really worth spending a lot of money on but actually the quality of life of having a a well-maintained heating system that's financially efficient and energy efficient in your home is not really so important I mean it's the same thing of like working too much and not having enough Mm. downtime with your dog kids girlfriend whatever like I think that is a big cultural Mm -hmm. question around quality of life and what we value Absolutely. And the thing that people I don't think often appreciate in the UK is that the UK has actually got really bad housing stock in terms of energy efficiency quality. And it's down like some of the lowest in Europe in in terms of lack of insulation, poor windows. And this is really basic stuff that can actually make a really big difference to people's, people's lives. And I just know I've lived in solid stone buildings with single glazed windows in winter with electric heating. And now I'm at the opposite end of the spectrum. And no, this is lovely in here. Uh, it, it's, it feels cozy, it's comfortable. And I just know how horrid it is to be in a really cold, drafty house. And, you know, yeah, it's not valued. You're absolutely right. It's amazing, but is isn't that it? because we have such a temperate climate? And then I, your engineers I, aren't valued either. I mean, like, you, yeah. you've got engineers, great engineers. So like, there's a friend local to me, um, Sean from Barrett Heat, and you've got Ian Rice in, in sort of Northampton. <laughs> You've got gas man. God, mm. the knowledge these people—they they can walk in. I mean, there's so many different makes and models of gas boilers. Mm. They can walk into someone's home and they can instantly think, "Oh, I, th- I think I know what's wrong with that," and get that heating working for someone in a matter of minutes. Mm. And yet, customers will quibble the price. Now, I'm not knocking plasters. One of my best friends is a superb plasterer. <laughs> no one quibbles his price, and no one tri- quibbles carpet <laughs> fit yeah. the prices now. Still, skillful trades, but they do not have to have the knowledge anywhere near the knowledge that a gas engineer has to have. All, all the tools. I mean, you go and look at my mate's plaster's van. I mean, it's a bit messy, but he's got a bucket. He's got a, he's got a level. He's got his float. He's got, <laughs> he ain't really got a lot. You know, you look at the average plumber heating engineer's van. They've got thousands and thousands of pounds worth of kit. You know, which unfortunately is getting nicked a lot of the time, mm. uh, which is a very, very big problem. Electricians are the same, you know, they're very yeah. highly skilled. So electricians, they and they do. go in there and they, they might spend five minutes getting that, but they know it's, it's wrong. And then the customer says, well, you've only been here five minutes. <laughs> yeah, but that's not yeah. the point, is it? They, they, their <laughs> knowledge knew what was wrong with that, and yeah. that's now made your family, you might have young people, you might have elderly people living there, you're now comfortable. And mm. people just don't value the heating engineer anymore. It's, it's, it's so frustrating. It's that analogy. I Yes, it has taken me 10 minutes to fix your boiler, but it's you're paying for my experience of the previous 15 years of doing what I do. And Is that about, they like, um, I don't know, programs like, yeah. you know, that go like and trader. that's yeah. it. Mm. And so there gets a bit of a culture of mm. like... I'm like being I, a bit I, tough. Yeah, mm. I have people say to me like, oh, I wanted to have a woman because I think you're less likely to rip me off. And I'm kind of like torn with partly feminists saying, well, oh. hang on a minute, I could rip you off just as much as a fella. <laughs> yeah. But then on the, I'd make advantage on the of other that. Hand, I'm, I always say to them, look, the guys are really sound. It's not like bad people rip people off. It's mm. not gendered. Mm. But I do think there's a bit of a culture happened around, you know, trades trays will rip you off don't trust them if they spend too long you know i went to do a boiler service for an older lady last year and i was there longer than half an hour she's like the previous bloke was in and out by now why are you still here you know like mm. well it's almost a, they're, yeah, almost a, they're annoyed yeah why have you taken my boiler apart exactly um because like i'm, I'm servicing it properly <laughs> oh the, the last guy didn't do that 
Well, we're going to end it on that one. Um, I'd like to thank all my guests. Uh, so we're down at uh, Richards, and we, you can find him on Twitter, Policy Rich. Uh, fantastic guy to interact with. I'm here with my uh, sort of usual guest host, um, Ken Bone. He's on. Tw- you're on Twitter, Ken, aren't you? Is it Ken? I am indeed, Ken Bone forty four. Or I'm trying to use the handle as Bones. Just look me up as Bones. And. That, that, that's coming from the Star Trek analogy, I think. Isn't it, it is, yeah. And Survey, you're known as Plum Maid on yeah. Twitter, aren't you? So people yeah. can people can find um, Survey. And I'd like to thank my sponsors, MCS, and you can find them at mcscertified.com. Once again, thank you to my guests and thank you to my listeners. Thank you.